Well, good morning, church. You can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. We're continuing our study through the Gospel of Luke. And as you turn there, um, for those of you that are visiting for the first time this morning, I want to apologize on behalf of anybody with low blood sugar today. Um, we're, we've had a week of fasting and prayer as a church that we're actually breaking this morning with communion after our study of God's Word. And Jason's mentioned it, it's gone out in the emails, but I just want to say it again. If you have stories of this week fasting and praying and seeking the Lord in ways that you saw God show up, ways that He spoke to you, and ways you saw Him moving, uh, we want to hear about it. You can grab one of the pastors, you could write it on the prayer card that's in the pew in front of you. Um, you can just tell someone around you, but... You know, we live in a world where bad news travels fast. Let's get loud about the good news, especially with what the Lord is doing. We want to hear about it. We want to celebrate it with you. So um, don't keep those stories to yourself. One thing, though, I do want to mention is that uh, I know many of you, I've talked with you, you've been fasting this week from all different things. But I don't want you to be disappointed if you're coming in this Sunday not feeling like you had a mountaintop experience with God, as some might. Many people who've completed an extended fast um, feel a nearness to God they've never felt before. But others, honestly, who sought His face experienced no particular outward results at all. Maybe your fast was physically and emotionally and spiritually grueling. But you completed the fast unto him as an act of worship, and God honors that. Our motive in fasting should never be a, an experience, but to glorify God and to continue to seek his face. And before we choose to satisfy our flesh, we want to feed our spirit. But before we take communion and break this fast together, we're going to dive into the Word. Now in Luke chapter 11, if you weren't with us last week, we were looking at the clash of two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus began to explain these two kingdoms and this strong man, but this stronger man represented by the Lord and he spoke to the call to a side that if you're not for his kingdom, you're against it. And if you're not among those who are gathering, you're among those who are scattering. And it's in that same vein that we're going to look at Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 24 this morning. And here's what we read. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest, and finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. And it happened as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts which nursed you. But he said more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Let's pray this morning as we 
begin our study of God's word. Lord, we come before you this morning. Many of us hungry, God, but more than physical hunger, we hunger for your word. God, we hunger for your presence. Lord, we trust in the words of Jesus that man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Lord, we pray this morning that you would feed our souls through your living and active word. God, that you would instruct, correct, exhort, rebuke as you see necessary for your glory and our good. God, just as our text this morning tells us, we want to be people that are blessed because not only do we hear the word of God, but we also keep it. And Lord, we know that that is a work that is impossible without your spirit. So would you open our eyes? Would you illuminate the text? Would it take root in our hearts and would you empower us to be people that go out and keep it by your strength and not our own? Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we've had this week to die to our flesh practically and to pursue your face. God, we pray this time as that continues, it would be pleasing in your sight. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Well, if you're taking notes this morning and you want to write down a title, you could write this down, Religion Without Regeneration. That's what Jesus is going to be speaking to through this story of this man and It's something we do well to remember. Religion without regeneration and the danger of it. Today, Jesus is going to clearly speak to the dangers that exist within a religious system that calls for reform and yet does not bring one to Christ where there can be complete regeneration. Now, what do we mean when we say regeneration? It just simply means to be made new, to be born again. It's the Spirit of God bringing life to a person who was dead spiritually and giving them a new heart, a renewed mind, making them a new creation in Christ Jesus. And as we see in our the text this morning, any religious system that calls people to good works without first bringing them to the one who forgives, fills, and empowers them to do so does more damage than good. J.C. Ryle said this of this text. He said, let us observe how dangerous it is to be content with any change in religion short of thorough conversion to God. Jesus here, he gives a story to those who are listening right within the same context of talking about these two kingdoms and everyone needing to choose a side. And he says, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man. Here we have a man who in many ways seems to want to play in the neutral zone still. We'll see the spirit leave the man and yet we do not see regeneration taking place. We don't see the spirit of God coming within that man. And the end of this man is far worse than the beginning. We're given a man who's demon-possessed. Now, demon possession, though not a fan favorite in kids' ministry to be teaching the children, is very real still today and something that as the church, we can't afford to be ignorant of. 
Demon possession in, is a term in Scripture in the New Testament translated by a Greek word, daimonisomai. And the term describes a variety of conditions we see throughout the Gospels, both physical and emotional, mental, psychological, for which the cause is direct demonic influence in the life of that person. Now the symptoms associated with demon possession, they vary significantly from one account to another. On one hand, we'll read about demon, a demon producing symptoms that are difficult even to distinguish from those of illness or those that are simply the result of living in a fallen world. Specific accounts refer to an inability to speak, sometimes mentioned alone, sometimes together with blindness. Other times, the demon possession is accompanied by intermittent seizures and an inability to hear. In one case, a demonic influence mimicked a severe psychological and psychiatric disorder, which included uh, ferocious behavior, social isolation, nakedness, self-harm, and excessive strength. The remedy we see both Jesus and the other Jewish exorcists he's spoken to already was to cast out that demon from that person, that they might experience freedom from that control. But the question arises, doesn't it? How do we know when someone is struggling with seasonal depression or being oppressed and possessed by a demon? How do we distinguish between the two and how do we address it correctly? C.S. Lewis, in his book, Screwtape Letters, he talks about two primary mistakes believers can make in regards to warfare. And he says that it's thinking too little of Satan or thinking far too much of him. So this morning, if you think every cold you get is the sniffle demon, every stub toe at night when you're going to the bathroom is the cursing demon, you're giving the devil far too much credit. But also, if you think every wave of condemnation that hits you and every struggle you can't find a solution for or even a cause of is just a bad habit, it's just a fluke event, it's just a need for more medication, you're not recognizing enough the spiritual warfare that is going on around us at all times. Now, we want to be a people that hold these two in tension. Now, don't get me wrong. The majority of spiritual attacks you will face are not going to look like people climbing up the walls or the little grandma who's throwing the pews across the church building. That's great for Hollywood horror, but that's not the reality of what we see in the Christian life. The majority of times the enemy is going to attack you He's going to attack you in your head, and he's going to attack you in your heart. He's going to seek to bring confusion, doubt, questioning in God's plan, God's goodness, God's control, his character, and even his word. And then he's going to attack your heart to bring condemnation, shame, bitterness, envy, jealousy, selfishness, and pride. Now, before you throw all the blame on him, 
That doesn't mean every time we make a selfish decision, the devil made us do it. We have a sinful flesh and we live in a fallen world. But it is worth discerning in moments what the root cause of that action is and how we might address it. And it brings us back to that original question, doesn't it? How? How do we know? How do we know what it is that's causing it and how can we address it? Well, Jesus gave us a great example to follow. First, we see Jesus by the Spirit discerning the difference between the cause that required a miracle of healing and those that required an exorcism of a spirit. Surely he didn't show up at Peter's home and see his mother-in-law sick and say, we need to cast out a demon. No, he prayed for her healing. Another clear sign of demon possession we see in the Gospels is that when demons are brought into the presence of Jesus, often what takes place is that they clearly distinguish their presence among the individual, don't they? They're crying out that he is the Lord and he's silencing them. They're begging to go into the swine. They're asking if this is the time he's coming. They clearly reveal themselves in his presence. And yet we also see times when others close to those possessed by a demon have witnessed such signs leading them to believe one is possessed by a demon. Like the father who noted that whenever his son went by water or fire, that the demon would cause his son to convulse, trying to destroy him in the fire or the water. And so in following in Jesus' example, we allow the discernment of the Spirit in our lives to guide us. We bring the presence of Jesus into that moment to see what is revealed. And we trust the testimony of those who know those people best and who can recognize and often diagnose quite clearly if this behavior is just another day or if this is something quite different. And there's one other distinction we need to make before we can continue to look at Jesus' story here is that nowhere does it say this man was a believer. Now, we as a church believe Christians cannot be demon-possessed, and that's not just a theory we came up with. While the Bible does not have the chapter and verse I can show you, biblical truths make it abundantly clear that this is the case. Notice that in all the New Testament passages you could look look at, dealing with spiritual warfare, there are never one instruction given to cast out a demon of a believer. No, believers are told to resist the devil, not to cast him out, and that he will flee from you. Just last week, we looked at a strong man and a stronger man. And if you're a believer, Jesus has taken that strong man who once may have had control over your life. He's overtaken him. He's thrown him out and kicked him to the curb, and he's taken residency in your heart And he doesn't give up territory he takes. No, if he sits on the throne of your heart, you better believe he is quite comfortable there and he's not going anywhere. You have been sealed by the Holy Spirit and no strong man is going to overtake the stronger man. He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. 
Now, there's a distinct difference from being possessed by a demon and being oppressed by the influence of a demon. Now, where demon possession involves a demon having direct and maybe even sometimes complete control over the thoughts and or actions of a person, demon oppression or the influence of a demon involves a demon attacking a person spiritually and or trying to discourage them and lead them into sinful behavior. Now, as a believer, you cannot be demon-possessed. You begin the Spirit of God that gives you self-control. But that doesn't mean that there are not demonic forces that will attack you, that will try to tempt you and try to discourage you to bring confusion. In fact, I can tell you as a pastor and talking with other pastors, you wouldn't believe the spiritual attacks that come Saturday night and Sunday morning before entering the pulpit. The the floods of condemnation and guilt and shame and discouragement and doubt. And it's important that we recognize this that we clearly diagnose it and that we can speak out against it and follow in Jesus' example. What did he do when he was in the desert, tempted by the devil? It is written, it is written, it is written. He combated the lies of the enemy with the word of God. But here we don't see this man with such an ability. No, we're told the Spirit leaves this man and the Spirit goes throughout dry places, seeking rest. It's traveling around seeking another host that it might fill, a person, a place, or a thing that it might possess to continue to wreak havoc. And yet finding none suitable, what does it do? It returns back to that man. I'm going to make a U-turn. I'm going to go back and visit my old buddy and see how he's doing. We don't know how this spirit left this man. We assume probably by these Jewish exorcists that Jesus had already spoken to. They've casted out the demon, but he's not been given the Spirit of God. And so this demon returns to the house in which it came. And what does it find? The house is swept up in order. The pictures are all straightened. There's a fresh scent as it enters the room. Oh, this is nice. What a welcome party. And so it goes and it takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And we're told the last state of that man is worse than the first. The demon comes back to this man's house and he finds it swept in an order. But you notice he doesn't find it occupied. No, there's still room for him to enter that home. The man's life, it seems, has been cleaned up, no longer under the influence of the devil, the demons. He's back on a better path. Maybe he's broken his addiction with drugs and alcohol. He stopped living in sexual sin. He's stopped cussing and he's more kind. He's holding the door open for others and he's giving to charities. He's helping coach his kids' soccer team. His life in all respects seems to be in good order. And yet, his home is not filled with the Spirit of God. His person, his body, is not a temple of the Holy Spirit. 
At no time did this man go from demon possession to regeneration. And the outcome, Jesus says for him, is far worse than before, even when he was possessed. Because that demon comes back with his posse. He comes back with his buddies that we read are far more wicked than him. And they wreak havoc on the life of this man. I wonder if you even know people in your own lives that you have seen this same story play out with. People who seemed like they were getting on track and getting things back together, but they never fully surrendered to Jesus. And though it worked for a season, you saw them crash and burn harder than they ever had before. Fall farther away than they ever were. Go deeper into their sin than they've ever been. This is the danger of living in the neutral zone that Jesus is warning against. And this is why as a church, our message is not, nor will it ever be, to a lost world to just have good habits. The sermons that are given from this pulpit are never going to be TED Talks that hope to tickle your intellect and send you out with some good behaviors and some bad ones you should drop. We are not calling bad people to be good or outwardly good people to be better. We are calling dead people to come to life in Jesus. We are calling those in bondage to sin, headed towards hell, to find freedom in Christ and eternal life through his sacrifice. And I promise you, no matter how many good habits you have, no matter how good your 10-year plan looks, to do so without the Spirit of God is foolish. Salvation is what's needed, a relationship with Jesus, not a quasi-religious, legalistic system of do's and don'ts. One pastor, Bible teacher, and commentator, Michael Andrews, says this, Friends, here is the question we must wrestle with. Is it ultimately any advantage to enter a Christless eternity, sober rather than drunk, generous rather than greedy, celibate rather than promiscuous, clothed in your right mind rather than naked and foaming at the mouth? Is a reformed sinner any better off in hell than an unreformed one? Now he would go on to acknowledge the reality that it's not to say there's no reason to be pleased when someone reforms their behavior. They're more pleasant to be around. They make better neighbors. They stop hurting the people who love them. And that's all great. But man's dreadful, sinful condition cannot be healed by a little more tidying up. In fact, there's a very real sense in which a reformed life without God can actually be worse off than an unreformed life. Because at least the latter knows they've messed up and can't save themselves, while the former is often proud of the progress they've made and aren't looking for any help or hope. And Jesus is making a clear distinction here of a man who the spirit goes out of and then returns with all these other spirits, and the state of that man is far worse because what's needed is not just for people in Auburn and Placer County to live better lives, to be better neighbors, 
to say kinder words. What's needed is for dead people who are under the power of the enemy, who are under the kingdom of darkness, to come to the kingdom of light through the power of Jesus. And even those who say, but I'm doing good for the community, Jesus draws a very clear distinction we saw last week. If you're not a part of his kingdom, you're against it. And if you're not gathering for his kingdom, you are scattering. There is no middle ground. Each and every one of us personally must choose what kingdom we are going to live for, in whom we are going to find our source of strength and hope and salvation. And it's at these bold words that a woman breaks out among the crowd. She can't hold herself back. She says, oh, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts which nursed you. She's just amazed by this teaching and authority and clarity that Jesus has. And she's like, oh, my gosh, blessed is the womb that bore you. Now, some would argue this is the first example of the worship of Mary we see in Scripture. And that might be taking this a bit far. We don't necessarily see her taking it to that state. But her immediate response is to bless the mother that made such a boy. And Jesus doesn't condemn her for this. But he sets the record straight on who is most blessed by God's standard. He says, that's kind of you, but let me tell you about somebody far more blessed. He says, even more than that, now Mary was blessed, make no mistake of it. She was greatly blessed and highly favored to get to be the, the woman that would get to bear the Savior of the world was an incredible blessing. And yet Jesus says such powerful words here when he declares more than that, more than that incredible blessing. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. He doesn't limit the blessing here to one woman. He extends this blessing to any and all who would hear his word and keep it. To hear the word of God. Romans 10, 17 says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Psalm chapter 1 would speak about the man that is blessed when it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Blessed are those who have heard the words of God, who today have the living word of God present with them in their homes, that they can constantly come before and be refreshed and filled and fed by. But it doesn't stop there with just hearing, does it? No, he says, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. 
You see, the Pharisees heard the word of God. In fact, the Pharisees memorized much of the Pentateuch. But the Pharisees failed to complete part two required for this blessing. That which is required of any who would call themselves a follower of Jesus. That they would not only be a hearer of the word of God, but a doer as well. They must keep it. Now it's easy to hear the words of God, even to agree with them and say, oh, that's great. Man, what a timely word. And that's powerful. That is challenging. That is a great call. It's a whole nother ball game to take that which you have read and heard and received and then go and do it. James, too, says it pretty bluntly when it says, you believe there's one God? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? So you've heard the words of God. You believe there is a God. Good job. Guess what? So do his enemies. They know very well he exists. Satan knows the word of God quite well. In fact, he is a master at twisting it to try and deceive people. No, but faith without works is dead. Blessed is the man who hears the word of God and who keeps it. You've all come to church today. You're hearing the word of God. Well done. But it doesn't start and stop here on Sunday. You have to leave this place and you are called by God to go out there and keep it, to apply it, to be doers of what you hear, to apply what the Spirit is revealing to you. And guess what? Tomorrow morning when you wake up, you need to get in the Word of God again. You need to hear his words daily. And you need to apply what it tells you to do. To allow his spirit to lead you and to show you what you must do. One of my favorite conversations is with new believers who may not know the lingo and they don't really fully understand all that's going on in their lives. But they'll make a comment like, look, man, I don't really get all of this or know how. I'm just trying to read what this says and then do that. And I'm like, perfect. (laughs) You're getting it more than people that have been in the Word a long time. Just read it and do what it says. Now, that's not something we muster up in our own strength. No, that is something we desperately need the Spirit of God to empower us to do. Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Oh, and the Greek word there means zilch, nada, absolutely nothing. You think you're going to do anything for the kingdom of God apart from him? You're wrong. So we abide in the vine that we might bear much fruit. We spend time in his word because our words aren't good enough. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, guess what? The word of God, it endures forever. And so this is the word that we allow as the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path to show us how we are to live. 
and who it is we are following. You want to know God more? He has revealed himself in his word. But then as we hear it, as we receive it, we keep it and we apply it again and again and again. Not only because this is fitting for the life of a Christian, but because there is a great blessing for the believer that does so. The blessing of peace that comes with the promises of God so that when the enemy tries to shoot those fiery darts at you, you combat them with the bulletproof proof of the word of God that brings peace. You cast all your cares upon him knowing that he cares for you. You're anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. You let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which is passes all understanding is going to guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It brings the blessing of growth that comes from the conviction of God's word. You ever read through God's word and gone, ouch, that hurts, but I needed to hear it. That's hard, but I know I need to apply it. That's for my growth. That's for my good. And so though it may sting a little, I'm grateful for it. There's the blessing that comes from the love that overflows through the example of Jesus Christ who first loved us as we spend time in his presence as we sit before his word. And we're told, beloved, let us love one another for love is of God. There's a blessing that comes from the wisdom that is gained through the knowledge of God and his word. In fact, it is the fear of God that is the beginning of wisdom. And as we sit before his word, great wisdom is gained for how we are to live, for the reality of what is true. There's a blessing of humility that comes as we recognize our own sinfulness and his holiness. And let me just tell you, the longer you follow God, the greater the realization of that will be. You don't follow God and at some point your sinfulness seems to diminish and his holiness seems to diminish. No, the longer you follow God, the more you are in his word and in his presence you realize even greater than before just how wicked you are and just how great God is. And the blessing of patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control that come as we abide in Jesus and allow the fruit of his spirit to abound in our lives comes forth. You know, it's been said that you become like that which you behold. And the more time you spend in the presence of God before the word of God, depending on the spirit of God, the more you're going to realize that is what's coming out of your life. We are vessels. What you pour in is what gets poured out. And maybe lately you've been looking at your life and you're not super thrilled when you look at what's coming out. Your words to others, 
the thoughts within your mind, the way you react in a moment, the decisions you're making, and you're recognizing, man, this is a lot more of me and a lot less of God. This is a lot more the works of the flesh, a lot less the fruit of the Spirit. And the invitation is to come and sit in the presence of God. Hear his word. Let it soak into your heart. Let him fill you afresh and anew with his spirit. Abide in him, and as you go out, go out dependent on him. Looking to him. Praying without ceasing desiring his guidance, and as you plan your ways, he will direct your steps. And you will have beautiful, incredible moments where you go, I don't know where that came from, but that was not me. That was the Lord. There's more of him, and there's less of you. Church, let no one ever deceive you. As you hear the word of God and keep it, you are blessed. And it does not matter what number is in your bank account. It doesn't matter what your home situation looks like, how big your house is, how shiny your car is, how great your job is, how well-known your name is, how big of an influence you have. If you are hearing the word of God and you are keeping it, you are blessed. The world has a whole different way to describe the person they would say is blessed. But Jesus, in his own words, says to you this morning, if you hear my word and you keep it, you are blessed. You are more blessed than even those who would try and give the blessing alone to Mary, the one who got to bear the Savior of the world. No, more so. The blessing is for those who hear the word of God and keep it. And so we've heard the word of God this morning. We've been brought before a text that shows us both the dangers of a religion without regeneration and the blessing that comes from those in the kingdom of God who hear his word and keep it. But the decision lays at your feet to choose this day whom you will serve. To take the word that you've been given and be a doer of it. To allow that which has penetrated your head to sink into your heart and sometimes it's the farthest distance ever traveled. And yet it's the call that Jesus gives for us today to hear his word and to keep it. And this morning what we're going to be doing in a moment as we take communion together is we're going to be remembering his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. His life that was the payment for the penalty that we deserved death. But before we do so, I want to give people an opportunity to make a decision and respond to that invitation. 
Because I want to make something clear this morning. Communion is something we take as believers. This is something for those that are a part of the family of God, that have surrendered to Jesus as Lord. So you get two options this morning, and you need to choose. One is far better than the other, but we won't force you. The first decision is, if you're not a believer and you're here this morning, to not take this with us. Set it aside. Nobody's going to kick you out. But this is only for believers to partake of together in remembrance of our Savior. Or you could do option two, which I highly recommend. I'm a big fan of it. And that is you can make the decision to change that this morning and give your life to Jesus Christ and then take this together with the family of God Remembering the Savior that died for you, that you have received his forgiveness for. And it doesn't take a list of do's and don'ts. It's not going to take you six months to go and complete and come back. It doesn't take you going and cleaning up your life and then coming back to Jesus. That's the wrong way to do it. The work that is needed for your salvation was finished on the cross with Jesus. He said it himself, it is finished It's done. All the things that needed to be done, I did it for you. We are told in Ephesians 2.8 that we are saved by grace through faith. And that not of ourselves, it's a gift from God, not of works. Otherwise, we could boast and we could say, I did this, I earned this. All you have to do this morning if God is tugging at your heart, his Holy Spirit is drawing you to Jesus is confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. What do I confess with my mouth? Well, first of all, you need to acknowledge you're a sinner. And you're not alone in that acknowledgement. You're in a room filled with sinners. But you must humble yourself before the Lord and acknowledge I'm a sinner. And Jesus went and died on that cross because of my sin. And because of my sin, Romans in the Bible tells us that the wages of our sin is death. So what you rightly deserve is not heaven, it's hell. It's eternal separation from God. We've earned it. That's our wage because we have worked in sin. But the beauty of that verse is though the wages of sin is death, we're told, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So you confess both, I am a sinner and I know what I deserve, Lord. But I also believe what your word says, that you have given your only begotten son, that he died on the cross for my sins And that he can offer me eternal life, forgiveness for my sins. And you believe that in your heart. And scripture says, you will be saved. No question about it. No doubt in your mind. In a moment, as you make that decision by the Spirit's prompting and revealing to you, you can be saved. And he will renew your mind He'll take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. He will make you a new creation in Christ Jesus. 
where old things have passed away and all things are new. And you could go from being on the wrong side of the battle that is coming to being on the right side in his kingdom. And you could go from a stranger in this place to a part of the family of God. And it happens in a moment. That's how big our God is. But it's a decision you have to make. You're no more a Christian for being in church than you are a car for being in the garage. Just because you came to church this morning doesn't save you. Just because you were born into a Christian family doesn't mean you were born a Christian. You were born a sinner. And you have a decision you can make today if you want to take that sin to the only person who has the solution for it, Jesus Christ. So here's what I'm going to ask. If there's anyone here who has not made that decision before, and you know right now because the Spirit is tugging at your heart and prompting you, you need to make that decision today. I'm going to ask you to either raise your hand or stand where you are. And you might say, well, I just kind of wanted to do it undercover. No, see, here's the thing. We as the family of God, first we want to celebrate that decision with you. We also want to come alongside you and support you in that decision. But also, if you can't make that decision here before the family of God that loves you, cares about you, and wants to support you, don't think you'll be able to stand with that decision out there in the world that will come against you and criticize you for it. I know it takes boldness. I know how much anxiety you can feel in that moment, and yet don't allow the enemy to cause fear from making the greatest decision of your life. So is there anybody this morning that needs to make that decision before we move into a time of communion and closing this morning? Now is your opportunity to respond. Well, then this morning, church, we're going to celebrate as a family the sacrifice that was made to take us from that kingdom of darkness and bring us into the kingdom of light. We're going to celebrate that the story we read this morning, this horrific story of a man who, though it seemed like he got his life back together because he had not been filled with the Spirit of God, the end was far worse than the beginning. We're celebrating that that's not our reality and that that never will be. That for each and every believer in Christ Jesus, what's ahead of us is greater than what's behind us. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter how great of a life you've had so far. I can promise you, your best days are still ahead of you in Jesus. And so we're going to respond in the only way that makes sense. As I invite the worship team to come back up, we're going to sing 
and we're going to celebrate the salvation we've found and the hope we have in Jesus. But here's what we're also going to do during that time. This is something a little different, but something that we want to make more of a a regular pattern here. While we sing a few songs of worship before we take communion together, I want to dismiss all the parents that are in the room to actually go and get your children during these next songs of worship. And here's why. Two reasons. One, because it was brought to our attention this week that there are people who consistently help in kids' ministry and they're on a regular schedule, but that schedule always makes it so that they land on the week we're doing communion. And we want every person in this church especially those serving faithfully to be a part of taking communion together with the body of Christ. But secondly, because we recognize the importance of the full family getting to be a part of this moment as we take communion. We've made it a habit in church that when we do a baptism now, we we have all the parents go and get their children. We bring them into the service because we don't want your kids to miss out on these incredibly impactful moments in the life of our church We want your kids to see that demonstrated through their adults and through friends that are getting baptized. And the same is true in communion. We don't want to rob the kids up there, the opportunity to be a part of this. Now I'll leave it to you as parents to make that decision on whether or not your kids take communion together with us. But we do want them to be in here and be a part of this holy moment as we remember the Lord's sacrifice and take communion together. So, During this next song of worship, parents, make your way up to get the kids that are upstairs. Grab them, bring them back to your seat, and then we'll take of communion together. I know it'll be easier. Hear me on this. I know as a parent of children, it's easier to grab your kids and go, we already grabbed them. We're already up. Let's just head to the car. Please don't. Bring them in. Sit back down with them. It's okay if it's noisy. We welcome the chaos, but let's take communion together as a family. Amen? Would you stand as we worship the Lord together?